Amen. Well, my name is Michael Schultz. I'm the pastor at Antioch Baptist Church in Lewisburg, Kentucky. And it is my great honor and pleasure to speak tonight. Um, uh, it's great to be a friend of Ken Glish. He's a good guy. If you don't know him, he's a good guy. When I was invited to speak a few months ago, I knew immediately what I wanted to speak on. Um, I wanted to address the 25th chapter of the London Baptist Confession, which is the chapter on marriage. Uh, if you want to discuss superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, I am the wrong person. Uh, if you want to wax eloquent about Thomistic divine simplicity or Biblicism, you have gotten the wrong guy. But if you want to talk about family, I'm your guy. I love talking about my family. I love hearing about all of yours. And I believe firmly that as the family goes, so goes the nation. We also understand that the health and the definition of a family is largely as dictated by the two people who are married leading that family. And so it could be said, as go marriage, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the nation. And in our case as a nation, as goes the nation, so goes the world in a, in a large way. So marriage is a massively important thing. When it is rightly understood, defined, and conducted, the world is a better place. And the, the glory of God is more vividly understood and seen. But when it is misunderstood and wrongly identified and wrongly defined, the world becomes a tank filled with chaos, as we see. And the glory of God is more blurry, harder to see in the world, and in many ways diminished. So... Biblically, there is no shortage of literature to go through about marriage. I told a friend of mine that I was going to be speaking on this, and he said, Ah, you're going to Ephesians 5. I said, Well, that's, that'd be a fine passage to go to. It'd be a really good one. Ephesians 5, Husbands love your wives as Christ loved in church, and so on. Uh, one guy said, You must be going to Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about marriage and divorce. And I said, Well, you know, close. Both of those are very close. I'm going to go to the passage that Jesus and Paul preached from when they gave us those passages. So if you want to open your Bibles, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 2. It should be pretty easy to find in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have your own copy. When Paul gave us Ephesians 5 and when Jesus spoke Matthew 19, they both referenced Genesis 2. And so in some sense, it's true that if there is any passage in the Bible from which we should gain our definition of marriage, it's this passage. This passage was written by Moses, presupposed as true by Jesus, and taught and affirmed by the Apostle Paul. Amen. If there is any passage in the Bible that we can say that one is right, it's this one. Amen. There could not be any more perfectly, thoroughly qualified passage to teach marriage from than this one. So, I want to read Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. That one's mine, by the way. <laughs> Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 24. I know I'm stopping short of one verse at the end of the chapter there, but uh, I wouldn't be a Southern Baptist if I preached the whole thing, right? So... Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> we can laugh at ourselves. It's, it's, it's like family. We can make fun of us. You, you're not allowed to, but we can. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, I'm going to read. And, and in honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God, all of you who are able, would you stand with me as we read Genesis 2, verses 18 through 24 together? The Word of God says, 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You can be seated as we pray. Our great God in heaven, our sovereign Lord and loving Father, we pray that as we sit here gathered in your name and in your honor, that you would be with us. And we pray that your spirit would guide us tonight as we seek to read and hear and preach and sing your word. God, as we endeavor to understand this great institution of marriage, and not only to understand it, but to rightly appreciate and practice it, we pray that you would show us your glory through this great institution. And through this great institution that you've given us, we pray that you would teach us who you are, who we are, and who you would have us to be. We pray that you'd let everything done here be done for our good and your glory. We pray this with faith that you've heard us and faith that you will answer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 The passage, or at least what I'm addressing, opens in verse 18 with something that really addresses all mankind, not just man. As you've read the first two chapters of Genesis, chapter 1, the overview of all creation essentially climaxes in verse 26 with the creation of man. That is to say that all of God's creation, everything that God ever made, reaches its pinnacle, has its glorious diamond at the top in the creation of humans. That is the greatest thing God ever made, was mankind, which he made in his own image. Then in chapter 2, we get a more detailed retelling of the creation narrative, specifically surrounding mankind, and in that story, the climax comes here with the creation of marriage. So it could be said that of everything God ever made, mankind is the most glorious thing he ever created. Yes. And of everything man was ever made for, marriage is the most glorious thing that man can do in his earthly experience. For the first time ever, God looked at man in verse 18 and he said, it's not good. Over and over and over up to this point, God has made a point of creating, ordering, and then saying, it's good. That is good. That is good. That is good. And we get to verse 18 and it says, the Lord God said, it is not good. This is not good. We should be deeply interested in whatever follows that statement. If God has said for the first time ever, this is not good, we should be deeply interested in whatever it is that is not good. And what he says is not good is the solitariness, the loneliness of man. 
Maester Eamon says to Samuel Tarley, a Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing. And perhaps George R.R. R. Martin didn't know when he wrote that that he was really bringing out a biblical concept that's ingrained in all of us, that mankind is not meant to be alone. Now I want to qualify that by saying not every single person in the world is meant to get married. The Bible makes that very clear. Jesus says so, Matthew 19, 12. Paul would also say so, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Not everyone is meant to get married, but no person is made to be alone. Creation happened. God made us in his image, which means we are made relational creatures. God has never been alone. God has existed in Trinity, in perfect union amongst the members of the Trinity, as long as God has been, which is innumerably far back. Before the creation ever started, God was already in relationship with the other members of the Trinity. God has never been alone, and therefore, having created us in his image, he knows that it is not fitting for us to be alone either. We are relational beings. We are made not to be alone. So whether it's a spouse or a close friend or family member, human beings are made to have relationships. So seeing that it was not good for man to be alone, God set out to make him a helper fit for him. And in the Hebrew, this term fit for him is one Hebrew word, kenegdao. It simply means corresponding to him, or we might say in modern terms, a perfect fit for him, a perfect match. The, the imagery is something along the lines of gears in a machine. They have to be perfectly matching one another, yet perfectly opposite of one another. Grab me a moment to explain exactly what it means to be a perfect match. You, you need to understand this. We are so pompous in our own human depravity that we believe that for somebody to be perfect for us, they'd be just like us. <laughs> if I was looking for the perfect person, they'd be just like me. Which the assumption, of course, is. Because I'm perfect. <laughs> but God says, oh no, contraire, dear loved one. If someone were perfect for you, they would be the exact opposite of you. A perfect match for you is someone who is not like you. Women and men are not meant to be alike. We are meant to be opposites. We were created that way. Your spouse is not meant to be like you. As aggravating as that can be. <laughs> That your spouse is not like you. They are meant to not be like you. Why? Because they complement your weaknesses and you complement theirs. Amen. You're not good. Okay? You're not alright. You need somebody to come alongside you and help you be a little better. Your spouse should be unlike you. A secondary reason that your spouse should be unlike you, aside from the fact that you are not okay, is that in their not being like you, they will make you, as a fallen sinful individual, more like the God that you worship. Why? How? How in the world could you ever learn to love someone unconditionally if they always met the conditions? That's right. How could you learn to be forgiving of someone if they never stood in need of forgiveness? How could you be like the God you worship if you were in a relationship with somebody who never treated you the way the church treats Christ? If we were always exactly what he wanted, that's not how it goes. And so in being in a relationship with someone who fails you precisely where you wish they would not, God says you are going to become more like me because you continue to love and be patient and forgiving with Amen. this person who greatly Amen. fails you, as I am with you. Amen. In that, 
you will learn to be like the God you worship because he has bound himself to us in a relationship that he depicts through marriage by being married to somebody who constantly fails you and needs your patience and love. Marriage is made to make you more like the God you worship, and it's therefore appropriate that in our confession, section 2 of this chapter actually reads that marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. Notice it does not say simply that the wife was made to be a helper of the man. Right. Marriage is made so that the wife may help the man and so that the man may help the wife. Right. Mutually helpful. They are a perfect complement and supplement for one another. They perfectly fit one another. And all of this goes to show that in the marital relationship, particularly marriage, but really all relationships, relationships must be something where you understand that you are going to have to sacrifice something. You cannot be in a relationship that's purely based on passion. It won't work. You can't be in a relationship purely based on a common goal or commitment. And being a pastor, I've had to counsel people who believed that they were just staying married so they could raise their kids. Well, good grief. What kind of goal is that? What kind of marriage is that? We're just staying married because we don't want to have to start on a new mortgage. We're paying off this house together. That won't work. A marriage is to be a relationship in which you recognize that the person across from you is making you more like the God you worship. Amen. Even when, and especially when, that means you have to sacrifice on who you are and what you love. Mm -hmm. That all comes from the fact that God said it's not good for you to be alone. You need a helper fit for you. Verses 19 and 20 address particularly men. Ladies, we'll get back in touch in a moment. But as we get into verses 19 and 20, it almost seems like God's going through trial and error. And in a sense he is, but not for his own understanding, not for his own sense of learning. God is going through this for the benefit and instruction of Adam. He is bringing everything he ever made to Adam to name. And there's something of great importance here that I need to point out. This will come up later. When you exert authority over something, biblically in these first few chapters, you manifest or exert that authority by naming it. That's a precedent that's set in the first few chapters of Genesis. God does it over and over in chapter 1. Verse 5, he called the light day, the darkness he called night. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth, the waters he called seas. Later in Psalm 147.4, God names the stars. When God exerts his authority over something and manifests that he has authority over it, he names it. He has authority over the earth and the land and the sea and the stars and the day and the night. He has authority over all of it and he names it. And thus when we get to chapter 2 here, they begin to refer to the man, not simply as the man, but as Adam. God has named him now. I have authority over him. And so God, in having given Adam this responsibility to take dominion over the earth and have authority over it, he begins to bring him everything. You name this. I named you. I have authority over you. I give you authority over all of this. A secondary authority, but nonetheless authority. That's going to come back. But bear it in mind. The first thing man ever was entrusted by God with doing was taxonomy. It's a weird thought, but bears never told us that they were called bears. <laughs> Bees and trees and whales and snails never whispered in our ears, I'm a cedar. <laughs> we named them. We took the authority, the initiative to say, I am bigger and better than you, I will name you. And by the way, this matters. 
because the concept of naming something to show authority over it is something that is still very much in play today. If you don't believe me, go to most any socialist or communist country, have a baby, and try to name it. All the people that I grew up with that have now gone through universities believe that Norway, Sweden, and Finland are the heaven of the world. It's the new heavens and new earth because the Scandinavian countries have got it figured out. Try to name your baby in Norway, Sweden, or Finland. You may not know this. They have an approved list of names that the government gives you that you can choose from for your child. Why? Because the government has authority over your child, not you. We understand that when you name something, you are exercising authority over it. And so we know that when we name our children, whoever names them has authority. For those of you who may, I pray this isn't something that you struggle with, but if your children ever come home and they say, I'm not going to go by Michael anymore, my name's Brittany, understand that this is precisely what's happening. They are assuming authority over themselves, which as a parent is yours. I named you. I have authority over you. You do not have authority over yourself. We understand the importance of naming something to show authority over it. Goes on all over in our culture. Okay? Verses 21 to, through 23 get us back to male female encompassing and it, it addresses everything. Verses 21 and 2 Adam has found no helper fit for him. You must imagine how long of a day that must have been, by the way. Naming everything? Everything. In the beginning, he must have been quite creative. You imagine he, God brings this big behemoth. God brings them all to him. He doesn't have to walk all over, but still, God brings this big behemoth thing. He's like, ah, what do you think of that? And Adam goes, hippopotamus. And he's like, all right. And they, right and hippopotamus, that's pretty good. And then about 20 hours in, God's going, what about this one? And he's like, B. And it's like, B, one letter. Wow, you got him. He's He's out of state. You know, this is a long day, and at the end of it, he has found no helper fit for him. And so God lays a finger on his shoulder, and he's out like a light, he goes. And then God does something that he's not done so far. Rather than creating something ex nihilo or taking the soil from which he has made everything else, he actually takes the rib from Adam and creates, forms the woman from that. And why he does that... You can speculate. Matthew Henry has a good theory. I think this one's pretty good. Don't take this as scripture, but it's good. He says, The woman was made out of the rib of the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but from under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be loved. Amen. You theorize what you like. I, I like that one. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. But there's something that does need to be noted here. In the text, when God makes the woman, what does he do with her? Let's read verse 21 again. Or rather, let's take verse 22 here. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He did the same thing in verse 19, you'll remember. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. He does the same thing with a woman. He makes the woman, he brings her to the man. For what purpose? Most likely to see what he would call her. Which is what? To allow him to exert and manifest the authority that he has over her. It may be a very uncomfortable and unpalatable thing to say in our modern world, but the creation ordinance that pervades <laughs> from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and well into the New Testament is that men are created with headship and authority over their wives. That is a biblical principle that is asserted right here 
in the fact that Adam gets to name the woman, just like he has named everything else. But allow me to temper that by showing you what Adam does first. When God says, you will have authority over this woman, does Adam respond by beginning to exert his authority? Does he command her to bow? Does he give her a task to perform? No. He sings her a love song. This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God says to the man, you have authority over this woman. Name her. And Adam turns and he sings her a love song before exerting his authority. His first reaction, his first impulse, is not to exert authority, although he has it. His first impulse is to love. This is the biblical husband. Men have authority. Men have authority invested by God himself. And yet that authority must be tempered primarily by love. Here we have the beginning of the marital relationship with God showing male headship. And Adam responds, not by exerting his authority, but by whispering a love song. He says, at last, this is the one I wanted. This is what I've been waiting for. 20 hours of hippopotamus, and I got th you had this in the back pocket? Like, come on. Etta James quoted this very verse. You may, not, you may not have known this. Some of you that are old enough to know who Etta James is. I say that like I'm old. You remember this song? At last, my love has come along. Where do you think that line came from? At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We know this. Solomon would say it this way. Song of Solomon 6.3 I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This is love, and love undiluted. No man should ever be bereft of the authority that God has placed him in over his wife, and no woman should ever regret that her husband has been placed in authority over her. That's right. Ephesians 5, 25-33 puts it this way, The man's duty is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The woman's duty is to respect her husband's authority. Now let me just briefly explain what that does not say because our culture would like to have it more focus on what it does not say. It does not say, husbands love your wives if they are easily lovable. If you've married a miserable old hag who ruins your life, you're under no obligation. That's not what it says. It says, husbands love your wives. It doesn't say, wives, respect your husbands as long as they are natural-born leaders with proven track records. If he doesn't do a very good job, all bets are off. No. It says, husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands. You'll notice that we're called to do the very thing that is not natural to us, by the way. I mean, said, men, command the authority over your wives that you have, and women, love your husbands. Okay. We are not called to do that which is natural to us. We're called to do that which is quite difficult, in fact. Some of you men, dare I say, need to be more romantic with your wives. Some of you wives need to, make a, need to make a point of honoring your husband. Otherwise, 
you fail to actually do what marriage is meant to do, which is to glorify God and make you more like him. And husbands, are you not able to love someone who is not easily lovable? How then can you say you are being made more like Christ? Wives, are you not able to honor somebody who does not lead the way that you would lead? I would do it better if I were him. No. We follow anyway. Along with this love for his wife, Adam does assert his authority over her by naming her, which is in some sense a commentary, an interesting commentary on what we have today, where women are no longer taking the name that their husband is meant to give them when they get married. You'll notice that thing has just slipped away in our generation. Adam marries Eve, and she takes the name that he gives her. This is a biblical creation principle. The precedent from the Bible is that women receive a name from their husband as a sign of submission of his authority and their children. Adam gives Eve a name, and for generations, women take the name of their husband and apply that name to their children so that the world knows that everyone in this household is under the authority of that man who gave us our name. Today, the temptation is not to take your husband's name, perhaps to hyphenate. My wife recently showed me a man we just laid in bath, laid in bath, <laughs> laid in bed. We're married, so either would be fine. But we laid in bed and just laughed and laughed and laughed because she has a friend from college who took his wife's last name, and we just he haw laughed. Because it is very well obvious that the person who takes the other person's name is the one under authority. We've seen this happen. You might not think that's quite right, but I believe that's biblical. Before we move on from the topic of love and authority walking hand in hand, we should note that our confession in section 3 of the 25th chapter clarifies that it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. There were no preconditions set on Adam and Eve. People who are poor can marry. People who are wealthy can marry. Tall people can marry. Short people can marry. Fat people can marry. Skinny people can marry. I'm not looking at anybody as I'm naming them. <laughs> you should realize I was like, they're going to think I'm way fat and skinny and tall. Now, all people can marry. The fat as well as the skinny. And in fact, you can all marry each other. Tall people can marry short people. And fat people can marry skinny people. And rich people can marry poor people. And perhaps it might be appropriate to say, as we are here near the South, black people can marry white people. Right. Saudi Arabians can marry Americans. Right. Yep. Everyone. There is one requirement set, and I love that this requirement is set. The requirement is, I'll read this again, all who are able with judgment to give their consent. That is to say, if you are not capable of consenting to this marriage, or if you did not consent to this marriage, you are not married. Okay, if the government or your parents forced you into a marriage, the marriage is illegitimate. There is absolutely no room here for pedophilia or child brides. Not available. Not an option. And before you think that I'm tilting at windmills here, I want to read you a quote from a book that was published in 2011. Okay, this is within my little lifetime. 2011... A guy named Von Ullman wrote a book called The Covenant of Betrothal. It was not a commentary on Leviticus. It was a book intended to teach conservative Christian parents how to wed their children. Here's the quote. Biblically, a child's consent is not a veto power over their father's decision. 
If the child fails to consent, they are being disobedient. They are breaking a binding covenant that their father has made. It is adultery, and the punishment for adultery is death. That's not a commentary of Leviticus. This is a book from 2011 meant to teach conservative Christians how to wed their children. The consent of the child is a non-factor if they do not obey their disobedient. And if they're disobedient, by implication at least, if not by explicit statement, they're worthy of being killed. We are not on the edge of craziness. We're here. You'd better get your definition and your application of marriage clear now. Yes. And don't think that anything is way too crazy to deserve attention. That's right. You're right, brother. In verse 24, we move forward. Notice that the verse begins with the word therefore. I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say. Okay? It does link the verse before it causally with what it's about to say, and that matters. Because what it's about to say is that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That is a consequence of the fact that the man has authority over his wife. Yeah. Let me explain really how that all works. What is happening here is we have a man being given and endowed with authority over his wife. And as a consequence of having given, been given that authority, there is an immediate responsibility placed on him. If you're going to have authority, you have to bear the responsibility. And there's primarily two. First of all, the man must be independent and self-sufficient enough as to need no one to help him. There's a line from The Godfather. I can't do Marlon Brando, okay? I, I tried in the mirror when I was practicing this. I can't, all right? But the line is this. I've spent my whole life trying not to be careless. And then he says this. This would not get put in a movie today because it's true. I've spent my life trying not to be careless. Women and children can afford to be careless, but not men. Women and children can afford to be careless, but not men. In order for a man to be biblically fit for marriage, he must be trustworthy. Literally, worthy of trust. Can he provide for you and your children, or is he still dependent on somebody else? Okay, if, if he can't take care of himself, he can't take care of you. Right? Would he protect you, or is he a coward? Does he have a good work ethic, or does he quit one job after another? Does he take responsibility for his own actions and the consequences thereof, or is everything that goes wrong somehow everybody else's fault? Young ladies can often be fooled by charm and good looks just as much as men can. But when you grade a man based on his trustworthiness rather than his appeal, you'll know the difference between a fun date and a good husband. Yeah. You'll notice, by the way, that the woman doesn't have those responsibilities. The woman doesn't have to leave her father and mother. Not to get married. She's not responsible for being independent and self-sufficient because it's expected that she will be protected and provided for by her husband. And we're not going to go down the road of should women work. I'll simply say a woman should not have to work. You want to work, that's your business. But if you're going to marry a man, he'd better be able to take care of you. That's a responsibility that goes along with his having authority. And the second responsibility is that he is to hold fast to his wife. 
The Hebrew word, wedebach, it literally means to stick to. It's a gluey word. It, it depicts somebody who is not allowing anything to come between them or separate them or even add itself into the equation. He is for her and she is for him and nothing else. There is no room for speculation. He is not carrying on inappropriately with other women or girls at his workplace. He's not liking other girls' pictures on Facebook and Instagram. And he's communicating to you that he desires for you to live the same way. Amen. He is guarding both sides. I will not allow anything to separate us. He lets nothing come between them. Also, I, I, before we really get towards the end of this, I believe this verse provides perfect remedies for all of the maladies that we have in our culture as we suffer from our misunderstanding of marriage. I want to look precisely at what the confession says regarding marriage. And I want to go point for point here. First of all, how many people are to be in a marriage? Okay, I know we said, <laughs> yeah, it's 2023 in America, okay? Ha, 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 you're way right into Gomorrah. Yeah. All right? How many people are to be in a marriage? Well, in the English, it says, A man, a man, shall hold fast to his wife. Well, you might say, well, that's the English, but what about the Hebrew? It may be less specific. It's not. It's really, really not. We can look at the Hebrew. The word a man, Hebrew, ish, parsit, noun, masculine, singular. That's simple enough. To his wife, Hebrew, beesto, parsit. Well, it has a compound word. It's a prepositional prefix. You take the prefix off. You have two Hebrew terms, his and wife. His is a third-person masculine singular. Wife is a noun in the feminine singular construct. Point being, everything in the sentence is set in the singular. Yeah. Everything. There is no plurality in the Hebrew or the English. Nothing plural. One man, one woman. Now, in studying for this message, I read Dr. Sproul's Truths We Confess, which is a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, rather similar to 1689, with notable obvious exceptions. But in that, in that commentary, Dr. Sproul wrote this, Polygamy and bigamy are not serious issues in our culture today. <laughs> I just, I, ugh, I went, what are you thinking? Where have you been? I told Ken this at a meeting last month, and he said, well, he published that, you know, back when he published it, that may have been true. The edition I'm reading from is a revised edition published in 2019. Let me tell you how wrong that is. In 2018, I was working at Eastern Kentucky University. I was an archivist there, and I had to make a trip across campus to the social work building. And going over to deliver some paperwork, I walked in, and they had a big board there, uh, with all of the types of relationships that were to be accepted on campus. Public university, this is standard operation procedure. I was not surprised when I saw gay, lesbian, bisexual. But what I was surprised by was the inclusion of polygamy, polyandry, bigamy. That was all on the board. And I guess I was surprised because I thought even non-heterosexuals would have a general respect for monogamy. But they don't. When you take the ground out from under you that says man-woman, Right. You also take the ground out from under you that says one and one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was on a public university. A few months ago, I saw a pastor whom some of you would know. He's a Kentucky pastor who claims to affirm the 1689. And he was saying that if the government in America legalized polygamy, it would be biblically permissible for Christians to practice it. 
He claimed that since it was practiced by God's people in the Old Testament, nothing other than the laws of the nation in which we live prohibit us from doing it now. This is a 1689 affirming man in our region. Polygamy would be okay if the government legalized it. The confession leaves no room for that. And beyond that, section 4 would eliminate that entire line of argumentation. In the discussion of incest, it says that unions that are outside the biblical definition of marriage can never be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties. The government does not have the authority to redefine marriage, whether same-sex or polygamous or incestuous or pedophilic. The government can't do that. They can pretend they can do that, but they can't. And the Christian church must firmly stand two feet, ten toes down and say, no, that's not marriage. Amen. Amen. Let me be perfectly clear. Marriage is one man and one woman. Amen. Polygamy was a sin when Abraham did it. Polygamy was a sin when Jacob did it. It was a sin when David did it. You read their stories. Did God bless the children of Hagar or Sarah? Was it the wife that Abraham married first or second that was blessed? Jacob's first wife was Leah, and from her come Levi and Judah, just so happened to be the chosen priests and kings of the nation of Israel. Mm. Study out the story of polygamy to the contrary. Did polygamy come from the line of Cain or Seth? Mm. Cain. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did polygamy not begin there? Did Abraham's family not suffer dearly and continue to suffer dearly today because of his polygamous choice? Did David not suffer greatly because he stepped out and took Bathsheba as another wife? Did Solomon not lead his heart away from God by going after many wives? You'd better get this right in your head. God has ordained marriage to be the union of one man and one woman. Nothing else is marriage. Look again at verse 24. What genders or sexes? By the way, those things are the same thing. What genders and sexes are to make up these two individuals? A man shall hold fast to his wife. The Hebrew word for wife can also just be translated woman. It's the same thing in most languages, in the Greek or in German, for that matter. In German, the word for wife is Frau, the word for woman just so happens to be Frau. Okay? Historically, this is the case. One man, one woman. Anything other is not marriage. The confession says it thoroughly. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor is it a woman to have more than one husband at the same time. And as a regrettably necessary aside, how are Christians to answer the question that sitting Supreme Court justices just seem to not be able to answer? What is a woman? How do we as Christians biblically answer this question, what is a woman? Well, just look one chapter further. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, gives us a great answer to the question, what is a woman? God says, Genesis 3, 16, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. So the sex of people who can have children, those are the women. The sex of people who cannot have children, those are the men. That's right. Right? So regardless of what surgeries you've had or who you think that you are or how you dress, biblically marriage is one man, that is a person who biologically and anatomically cannot have children, and one woman, that is a person who biologically and anatomically can have children. That's what marriage is. One and one, man and woman. Okay. Finishing up with this last section, 
of verse 24, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus echoes this passage in Matthew 19, speaking of marriage and divorce, which notably is left open in our confession. Divorce. If you read the Westminster, they have a statement on divorce. The 1689 leaves a room for flexibility on your position on divorce, and I think that it's better to do so. But what there is explicitly no room for in the marriage, in our confession, is the marriage of Christians with those who are not committed to the Christian faith. This is impermissible. Section 3 makes that abundantly clear. And rather than going through trying to show you passages where that's commanded, I would rather go through practical applications of this. And maybe for those of you who would like to debate in friends superlapsarianism, I, I might itch your scratching ears for some doctrinal depth here. Why can't Christians marry unbelievers? For that matter, why can't a Christian man have multiple wives, or a Christian woman have multiple husbands. Why can't Christians marry spouses of the same sex? Why? Other than that God said so, which would be enough, but why? I understand. We're prone to ask that question, why? In Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul quotes this very passage, he tells us that marriage is a mystery profound because it refers to Christ and the church. We have an image. Marriage is intended to depict Christ and the church. The husband represents Christ, the wife represents the church that he died for. So as we wrap this up, I want to go through a few of the applications, doctrinally, which would occur if we as Christians accepted perversions to marriage. Bear in mind this picture that God has given us, that in a marriage, the husband and the wife represent Christ and the church. If a Christian man could marry an unbeliever, it would portray Christ as having a church full of unbelievers. That's the picture that would be painted. Which would therefore render the doctrine of salvation by faith alone completely destroyed because faith would be rendered inconsequential. Faith is meaningless if the church is full of faithless people. If a Christian woman could marry an unbeliever, it would portray the church as married to a Christ who does not know God. Who therefore is no Christ but Antichrist which would mean that a Christian woman married to an unbeliever portrays a church that has placed its faith in a false Christ. And therefore, in either case, the doctrine of salvation by Christ alone or the doctrine by salvation of faith alone are destroyed. If a Christian man could have multiple wives, it would portray Christ as having more than one bride, more than one church, more than one group of elect. But Christ did not die for multiple groups of people. In Christ, the word of God says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are one in Christ Jesus. Thus, a man with multiple wives destroys the Bible's testimony of the group for whom Christ died, and sola scriptura is destroyed. If a Christian woman could have multiple husbands, she would portray a church with multiple Christ, multiple saviors which once more would destroy the doctrine of salvation by Christ alone. <coughs> Polygamy destroys sola scriptura and solus Christus. Marrying an unbeliever destroys sola fide and solus Christus. If a Christian man could marry a man who would portray Christ with no church at all, which would mean Christ died for nothing, God manifested no grace, Christ provided no salvation, the scriptures have lied, so sola gracia, solus Christus, and sola scriptura are all destroyed. If a Christian woman could marry 
A woman, she would portray no Christ at all, therefore no need for Christ at all, no Savior at all, no God to put your faith in at all, and thus solus Christus, sola fide, and sola deo gloria are all destroyed. You must understand, to manipulate marriage, because of what Paul outlines in Ephesians 5, is to manipulate the gospel. Yes. Yeah. You mess around with the definition of marriage, by immediate implication, you mess around with your definition of the gospel. That's right. And Paul would say in Galatians 1, you mess, you mess around with the definition of the gospel, you are left with no gospel. Right. It's a perversion, it's a distortion. Understand this, if you mess around with the definition of marriage in any way, such that it is accommodating of anything other than one man and one woman, you are undermining not just your doctrine of marriage, you are undermining the entire Christian faith. You are manipulating this and in so doing making shipwreck of the whole Christian religion. However, if you maintain marriage as biblically ordained and instituted and maintained, you depict to the world a glorious reality, which is that our Savior died for his church. You preach the gospel by the very union that you are in to the person next to you. And by maintaining that marriage for life through difficulty, you depict to the world the doctrine of the, the salvation of the saints. By sticking with them through hardship, you depict to the world and indeed experience sanctification. And by going to the grave together, you depict to the world the reality that Christ has taken our hands as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need fear no evil, for he is with us. I recently had a member of my church, 56 years old, died of cancer. He fought cancer for three years. And I was fortunate to be his pastor and his wife's pastor because I got to be in the room as he was dying. And to watch her hold his hand as he passed through the veil of tears from this life to the next. There is no greater exemplar of what Christ does for us because on this side of earth, she's there holding his hand. And when he wakes up on the other side, Christ is there holding his hand. Amen. Amen. Marriage makes us more like him. Marriage tells us who God is. And marriage tells the world how God is with his church. Yeah. That's right. We must protect marriage. That's right. We must honor marriage. We must love marriage. Amen. I, I, this isn't in the notes. This is free. Okay? If you were a Christian man, may God curse you if you ever refer to your wife as the ball and chain. That is your bride. That's, right. That's the glory Amen. of the man. That's right. Christ died for his church. And you are called to die for your wife. Yeah. Wives, you are called to honor that man who would die for you. Even when he is hard to honor. Because you would honor Christ. Even when he would have you do something you do not understand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.